Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The sweary Barbie sticking it to the bleak Oppenheimers of the political podcasting world. I'm your host, Jacob Jarvis, and on today's show, Brexit is going to be big in Japan, apparently. With the CPTPP deal becoming official, we'll untangle what it means for Britain. First thing to clarify, no, we aren't getting 12 trillion quid anytime soon. Plus, go bloke or go broke. With Operation Gloves Off apparently soon to be underway, Tory MPs revert to strongman tactics as their poll numbers continue to look dire. Now, let's meet today's panel. Seth Tevo is a journalist and author and the snappiest dressed member of the Oh God What Now team. Hello, Seth. How are you? Hello, hello. Well, thanks. And you? I'm good. Rishi Sunak has announced a crackdown on university courses that don't offer good outcomes for students. Is this another example of him understanding the cost of everything but the value of nothing? You know, not everyone who goes to university wants to go and get a high-paid job afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I very much agree with Stefan Collini that we've got this obsession with metrics which are completely the wrong metrics for what you get out of a university. Um, We're not looking at wider impact on society as a whole. We're not looking at the degree to which graduates go on and create an impact across communities. We're interested on your earning potential after graduation. And we're interested on student satisfaction surveys. And the reason I mentioned Kalini is he says that when I've been lecturing students in philosophy after a term, if they all say that they're satisfied, then I think something's seriously wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I still live with someone who I went to university with and has been my best friend for 12 years now. And I'm happy to be in quite a lot of debt for that even if my degree is a little bit pointless, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's really interesting how there's some wider appreciation of just how colossally we've messed up in the way we've been structuring our universities over the last decade. Very interesting um, post over the weekend by Polly McKenzie, for those of you with long memories. Of course, she was Nick Clegg's special advisor when he was in office and one of the driving forces of the move to treble fees. And she's basically admitted, I completely messed up. I didn't consider any of these things at the time. Mayor Culper, um, by the way, I'm an an employee of a university in the arts sector so I've changed my mind (laughs) well I could have gone to university on the last three grand year and I didn't and so uh, let's not talk too much about mistakes in terms of spending money on university Uh, Yasmin Sirhan is a staff writer for Time magazine hello Yasmin Hello. If it makes you feel better, I have a lot of student debt. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing we can always do is look over to America and think, hey, we're not America. (laughs) Yasmin, last week we heard that public sector pay rises are in part going to be paid for by hiking immigration fees. What's going on? And is this tempting you to complete your citizenship quicker than you thought you might? I better because God knows how much it's going to cost if I wait any longer. Yeah, this is the government's latest gambit effectively to pay for the public sector, the 6% um, increase in public sector wages that, of course, as we know, a lot of people have been clamoring for, doctors and teachers among them. Basically, their gambit to pay that for that by increasing how much it costs for immigrants to both live and come to the UK. I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I can kind of understand the government's logic. This is a government that is obviously loath to A, raise taxes, or B, borrow more money. And they're going to need to find that money somewhere. Um, and this is also a government that isn't particularly keen on immigration. So, no. you know, if it happens to be something that this limits... This is literally them coming here and paying for a hospital. Oh, yeah. So. I want to get this that we pay quite a lot. Like, you know, in addition to taxes, the NHS surcharge and the fees with these... And it's worth prefacing. I mean, Brits may not fully be aware of this. 
the UK is one of the most expensive countries to move to. I mean, I I feel weird now saying that, you know, at least I only had to pay £2,400. That's not even including lawyer's fees just to get indefinite leave to remain last year. That some and um, a bunch of others are bound to increase um, in the coming months. I think we're going to see more details on that soon. But but I think what it does that's that's obviously negative is is for a lot of people who are currently living here who who rely on visas, it's going to get them in a lot of trouble because if they have to renew their visas and it costs significantly more, you may find that A, maybe their employers don't want to pay it or B, that they're not going to be able to afford to, to pay for that. Um, but B, it's also going to drive away talent. And the UK still has a lot of sectors that really need immigration, need people coming over to work, including the NHS. So um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's uh, I, I'm kind of now trying to consider should the price change for citizenship? I guess I'll find out soon. Is it weird that it's it's rushing you into getting citizenship here, but does it almost make you feel a little bit unwelcome too when the government does stuff like this? Uh, I mean, again, it's it's I'm not voting on that. Like, you know, at least not yet, not until yeah. I get citizenship. So, I mean, for the time being, these are not people that they really need to worry about yeah. disappointing. But I think in the long term, obviously, it's, it's going to be a problem. But I think this could vary, you know, if... I have a lot of friends who who'd love to, you know, li- who currently came to the UK through school, live here now. If it gets more expensive, I mean, a lot of them can't find companies to sponsor yeah. them anyway. These talented people who got educated in the UK will leave for sure. Our guest this week is a journalist and campaigner, not to be confused with the Gaelic footballer of the same name, Podrick Reedy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Podrick, Keir Starmer has confirmed that Labour won't scrap the two-child benefit cap if they get into government, mm. which is a, another sort of sigh moment that I feel like I'm experiencing right now. feels to me like everything Starmer says is laser-focused in trying to get into power. Removing him from this, is it just quite depressing what this says about Britain if he doesn't see scrapping that as a vote winner? I think, first of all, yes, putting him back in slightly, yes, you're absolutely right. Everything that Keir Starmer does between now and presumably January 2025 is laser focused. And he's very, he's been very explicit on that. The you know, Labour Party put out um, Instagram posts and videos last week reiterating the point that the point is to win, to win, yeah. to win. That's everything. Um, the Andrew Harrop of the Fabian Society um, put an interesting thread in response over the weekend to this, um, looking at their own research, which showed that, yes, there is absolute public support support for capping child benefit at two children there is yeah and that what there is a concern for children but the overriding feeling yeah. among the public is that parents ultimately have to hold that responsibility and if you have more than two kids that's that's your problem not the state's which is dispiriting and obviously you know for 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 the for you know left leaning progressive people you would feel that the you know the onus should be on supporting people who have more children because all the data well, shows supporting that... supporting children. Yeah, I'm supporting that's children it, to begin with, issue, yeah. obviously. Um, and the data does show that you know, the family, families having more children tend to be lower income in the first place. So yeah. you know, the children of those families are being yeah, excluded from something that, that higher income families take, you know, up to a point, obviously, but higher income families take as as a right. So it, it is... Somewhat depressing, yes. Um, about how, the the how child, I think child care in this country is yeah. is seen as something that's a very private thing. And you, I know the Labour Party is talking a lot about early years, and, and early years is is 
horrifying, horrifying expense for anyone who's been through it. You're paying, you know, kind of thousands of pounds a month yeah. potentially um, on caring for a child. And, and that does need to be resolved, I think, because, you know, horrible cliche as it is, it does take a village to, to raise a child. Yeah. And if everything is cast back on parents, parenting becomes a burden. And, and you know, you can't have a society where parenting and children are seen as actual burdens. Does Starmer need to get better at reframing things, maybe? maybe? Because I see that, as you say, there is support for keeping this benefit cap. But mm-hmm. surely he could flip this on its head and say, Labour will come in and take thousands of children out of poverty. And he can just sell that. And I mean, I'm not as good a communicator as Keir Starmer or a good enough communicator to be leader of the Labour Party. But that's why I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this again was something that, um, that Andrew Harrop mentioned, um, um, that... You need to look at how you frame these questions. First of all, Labour is very keen on saying, you know, we're not going to spend money here, we're not going to spend money here, and cutting things out. And you can understand the paranoia because the, the Liam Byrne, all the money's gone note, has haunted yeah. that party since since 2010. Yeah, well, Greg Hans is <laughs> tweeting it every <laughs> <Yeah>. day. <laughs> Still. <laughs> but, but you're right. I mean, there, there are there are two ways of thinking. There, there is the, the, you know, there is the very simple, you know, currently we have no plans to. Currently that is not in our manifesto, rather than we're never going to do this. And also... The old kind of what we're actually going to do is something else, yeah. which which costs less, which will help more. So you know, you flip it around to like, and well, we're going to talk about you know universal school meals, mm. which would be a very popular, very very popular policy, which wouldn't cost a fraction of child benefit, but would have immediate results, particularly for you know children in early years. Again. <laughs> Next up, Britain has officially embarked upon a new era as part of the CPTPP, a trade bloc which is basically a bit like the EU single market, but a lot further away, and we do less business with it. GB News said Kemi Badenoch, Secretary of State for Business and Trade, signed a £12 trillion treaty, while the Sunday Express splashed with the, let's say, misleading headline, £12 trillion Brexit trade boost. Seth, is that figure a bit like the number we saw on the Brexit battle bus? Yes, because for a start, <laughs> even including the UK, it's actually eleven trillion. <laughs> so they've rounded up. They've rounded up bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, what it actually is is simply they've added together the combined GDP of these eleven countries. <laughs> there is no way that they are decanting the economy of the 11 <laughs> countries together. Yeah. Um, but if you want to have a comparison, I mean, the EU on our doorstep has a combined GDP of $16 trillion. Now, what that translates to is about $340 billion a year in exports or $430 billion a year in imports from the EU. That's nothing like the actual figure. The problem here is that we're, we're doing an agreement with... Um, places that are quite far away. And that impacts very obviously on trade. I mean, we're not going to revolutionise the economy by selling leatherette watch straps to Kuala Lumpur at scale. And, um, you know, if you actually look at the Commonwealth, which is a really good comparison to this, uh, the Commonwealth actually has a combined GDP of £150 trillion. Now, that's nearly 10 times the size of the EU as a sort of combined GDP. But obviously, being rather further away, it's rather more difficult to trade with. And so the actual trade is about £75, £78 depending on the direction that's about one-fifth of the trade with the EU. So I'm not expecting great things from this. It's just reminding me of when Dominic Raab said he didn't realise just how important the channel was. (laughs) 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 And that seems to be, you have to not realise how important the channel was to think this is a good deal, really. What does it actually really mean for us financially? 
That's a very good question. I mean, I'd say very little for the simple reason that of the 11 countries that are within the CPTPP, uh, we already have free trade agreements with nine of them. Uh, you know, Canada, we already trade with because they're in the Commonwealth, Australia and Japan and so on are examples of medium-sized economies. Then you've got these countries like, you know, Vietnam and Chile and Peru, which are let's say medium size. Well, I saw best. Malaysian palm oil is apparently going to be something mm. which can ex- exchange quite well here, which doesn't seem like the hugest money maker. Well, you may jest, but Malaysia is going to be one of the big money makers here because only Malaysia and Brunei are the countries that are actually not already okay. covered by existing free trade agreements. So anything that we can get out of Malaysia um, is basically <laughs> what There are only so to. many super yachts you can sell to the Brunei royal family. <laughs> there is a limit to that market. They have enough. <laughs> I feel like I know there's a simple answer to this question and it's no but i'm going to ask you it anyway does this come anywhere close to making up for being in the eu in any realm even if you frame it in total shit no 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 i mean sorry the danger is you end up quoting thatcher but no just no yasmin in march a telegraph headline bellowed britain's accession to the world's most dynamic trade pack it is the end of the rejoiner dream are our dreams truly dashed I don't know. I mean, I'm surprised that people are still dreaming, I'll be honest. Um, no, I mean, to, to the point that Seth made, I mean, this is not a replacement. And so so long as it isn't a replacement, then I, I don't really think there's, you know, you, you these are not, these are apples and oranges, I guess you say. At least if, maybe not apples and oranges, but certainly like what's a big fruit versus a small one? A grape <laughs> versus like a, a cantaloupe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For all the reasons that, that were just outlined, the, the number of people, the scope, um, as you noted, these aren't, you know, Britain's closest trading partners. That said, I mean, it's not, I think what is positive and the only sort of the, the positivity that can be grip to in all of this is that this i'm not going to bother with the acronym because i will mess it up but but this this group um <laughs> does stand to potentially grow in size and scope there's talk of of costa rica and ecuador apparently applying to join now as we've noted a lot of these are like kind of middle sort of tier countries in terms of economy so it's not like you know the u.s was was supposed to join but as, as we all probably remember remember donald trump pulled us out with that yeah. i think on his first day in office so the u.s isn't part of it i think china launched a bid to join in 2021 but that doesn't look like it's going to be happening at least in the near term so i mean the question is where does this end up going and what's its potential there but britain can't really you know declare a 12 trillion or billion dollar win off of, you know, what happens in the future. So I think in the, certainly in the near term, it's, you know, it's just fine, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> so not a, having a trade deal. Yeah, like yeah. trade deals aren't, yeah. aren't, you know, bad. They're, like, they're, they're good. They're just, but as we mentioned, we already have, bi- the UK already has bilateral deals with, with nine of the 11. Um, so for, I think it's Malaysia and Brunei, I think are the, the, the yeah. other two, then yeah, it's great for them. So it's like having a, a horrible partner is better than dying alone. To get really existential with the whole thing, but maybe other people might think not. It's less a a partner and more being polite to the neighbours, except the far away neighbours, streets over. Yasmin, how have other nations involved in the CPTPP reacted to Britain joining? I mean, I tried to. I haven't seen too much fanfare. Um, granted, as we know, you know, news of this kind of dates back to March. There aren't that many of them as well. So, you know, if, if there was a lot, there there probably wasn't going to be a lot of noise anyway. I think um, we've already mentioned this, but for Malaysia, the the prospects of uh, tariff free palm oil exports is quite exciting. Yeah. Um, and for Japan, this was a big diplomatic coup because they were really behind getting Britain on board. Um, but apart from that, I haven't really seen much. 
Is it better for other countries than us then, as you say, the other way around, like Malaysia and Japan? Is it, it's quite a, a coup for them, but for us, it's not. You know, we're not going to be trading massively outwardly to those countries, potentially. I, yeah, I mean, I would imagine it's, it's positive for them in, in the same way, like kind of just going back to what I said, it's, you know, it's certainly for Japan, I think it was this reorientation of kind of Western countries like the UK towards the Indian Pacific. Like that's a positive thing. To what extent it's good for its members, I think, is kind of based on its future and how yeah. big it grows. Um, but, yeah, I, I haven't seen any confetti sort of going off no. anywhere. Do they feel like the clearest benefit to this is sort of a soft power exercise, which to me feels even more depressing on the EU level because being a part of the EU felt like the best soft power af- asset we could have by being a bridge between Europe and America, which we simply aren't now. Is that part of the framing here, you know, that we, we've got better global relations, but again, they're, they're nowhere near as influential as ones we already had? Yeah, I think that's exactly the way to put it. Like, it's, it's a good thing, but again, you're dealing with perhaps not, you know, maybe the UK is now among its peers. I don't know. Like, it's, you know, that, um, maybe it's just kind of a realistic sort of understanding of where Britain wants to put itself economically in the future. Yeah, well, you know, we spoke before about how the, the special relationship is pretty much a delusion. And this maybe indicates the fact that, yeah, America chose not to join this and doesn't really need to. And we're having to frame it as the a massive win. So therefore, we're just clearly not on the same level as America. Because are very we? special to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get a trade deal, but it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> we're really good friends. <laughs> uh, Podrick, Kemi Badnock said the success of this deal depends on how businesses use it. Is this another case of saying it's all our fault if things don't work out? Yes, absolutely. There's there you know, there is no if they're not going to provide it goes it goes all the way up to Brexit. There's no framework here for how this is going to no. work for British businesses. There's no framework for how this is going to you know, going to be supported by the government. No framework for how the government is going to set up partnerships with companies in in the in the trading group. Anything like that. It's just you know, it's there now. You you carry on. You figure out what to do. Yeah. Which you know. Again, is is very much against that. You can't both trumpet a deal as a great success for British trade and industry, and then yeah. stand back and say nothing to do with us, Gov. Over ten years, we're looking at zero point zero eight percent increase in in revenues for the for the for Britain coming from this potentially compared to the OBR um, estimate, which is four percent downturn because of leaving the EU. So we just need fifty more of these deals <laughs> and we're back so, to where we started. So if they start inventing countries, yes. then maybe or we might do multiverse. Okay. Yeah. Multiverse diplomacy That's is the way, the way forward. <laughs> this kind of yeah, I mean I, I wouldn't be surprised at this point if they kind of started just slipping in extra countries that we've made <laughs> trade deals with that don't that don't exist. That feels like a thing which could definitely leak from a WhatsApp group, some kind of yeah. someone telling someone, let's just make some countries up. Of Disneyland, Alton Towers, yeah. the list is endless. Well Ron DeSantis was here, he's got that whole he hates Disneyland, but maybe you can work something out with Florida. I don't maybe know. There's something around that. Let Scotland have independence and then make a deal with them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna start hemorrhaging off territories. <laughs> but this empty boost does it not just set levers up for more disappointment? We talk a lot in this podcast yes. about how Remainers feel because we are for Remainers and our Remainers mm. ourselves. But, you know, the, the Brexiteers here are just being constantly told, hey, this is going to be amazing. And they've been told all the way and they genuinely have seemed to have believed it. And then it's just it's not, is it? Yeah, it's it's always over the next hill. Um, you know, they, you know, and you know, if you to cast your mind back, you know, the 
the, you know, we were going to be sailing the high seas, kind of plundering and trading as we went. And, and none of this has happened because because reality kind of suddenly kicked in. But what's not being done at any point is, is an acceptance of that reality. So as I say, we keep having to, you know, the tourist team having to feed people little extra bits as enormous victories. Yeah. You know, most people, you know, who voted either way probably couldn't locate a lot of these countries in this in this deal on a map and that's fine they are in the other another part of the world but to suddenly say this is this is what we've all been waiting for which is a trade deal yeah. with you know faraway countries of which you know little is clearly nonsense but because the whole thing was based on these these premises yeah you know, they have nowhere to go on no. this it's a bit like the Jehovah's Witnesses, I think they predict, first of all predicted that the world was going to end in 1919. And that was, that was in the early part of the century. And so when World War I started, they were incredibly excited. They're like, yes, we were right. Um, and obviously the world didn't end. So every few years since, up until quite recently, I think, they've had to keep pushing the date back. And every <laughs> single time you do, but every so often there'll be a sign. And they'll go, that's it. Yeah. We're on. It's happening now, definitely. But it still doesn't happen and even the Jehovah's Witnesses have come, have come to the point where they've stopped setting dates and said, well, it's some point in the future. Yeah. But the Tories haven't quite got to that kind of, even to the point of the, the benefit is some point in the future yet. No. They're still trying to sell us, it's now, it's happened, it's here. We've done all these things, which is the same reason why we go in endless circles around small boats because they were going to be stopped as well. We go in endless circles about migration numbers, whether it's illegal or legal migration because that was going to be somehow magically solved. All of these things that they promised that can, simply can't be achieved in a re, in the real world. You know they keep trying to to, to pretend it can be solved and have been solved. It feels distinctly British. This kind of idea, though, of it, it's the hope that hurts you. <laughs> seems to be, we've translated that from sporting events to to politics at the yeah, moment as well. Yeah, and but we're looking at what was it? I think the um, the most recent YouGov numbers saying that the two thirds. Of people who did vote Brexit are now almost two thirds are are deeply unhappy with how yeah. this is going, um, and it, it you know you wouldn't want to engage in any level of Schadenfreude saying, yeah, well yeah this was bound no. to happen, but this was bound to yeah. happen, and it's just bringing them up to where Remainers always were, <laughs> which is why it's quite you know it is interesting to see that we've sustained mm. sort of flatlined at about eighty percent disappointed, yeah. and they've had moments of going, oh, no, this is actually great. And then it just always it creeps back yeah, up, up. And up and up. Seth, on Brexit delusions, uh, Tory MPs, on the polling among them, it would appear they're a little bit deluded on Brexit. Is this nonsense just going to stick around for as long as they do, however long that might be? We have a government which we elected with a set of priorities and we're stuck with them until we have another government. Um, I'm always a little Your bit... answer sounded like a Rishi Sunak <laughs> answer for a moment there, like you were just going to say, we have priorities and they are our priorities and our priorities are our priorities and just it, keep going. It, it was just an attempt to not uh, give you a string of profanities. I mean, I'm actually slightly mistrustful about some how some of these polls of MPs are constructed because it's mm. really difficult mm. to properly gauge a group as small as 352 MPs. Um, I mean, if you look at the sort of subsample, yeah. they, they found exactly 30 Conservative MPs saying they thought Brexit was still a good idea. Well, it's not that hard to find 30 Tory MPs will say that. <laughs> um, but the problem is that back in 2019, 
2016, when we had this government elected, mm. they were really running loyalty tests. You know, the purge of Tory moderates, even by the standards of the 2010s, was going on such a degree that, um, I mean, the, the religious analogy is a really good one. Uh, you know, unless you were pledging your ultimate loyalty in future forevermore, you were going to get deselected. So it's not entirely surprising that uh, some of these oxygen burglars um, have just stuck <laughs> to this myth and fantasy. Next up, time for our new feature, Hero and Villain of the Week, where the panel picks people whose stocks are going up and who is going in the stocks. This week, I'll be the judge. Seth, who are yours? I find it fascinating how my hero and villain is the same uh, entity. Uh, and I'll be very careful about them for obvious legal reasons because they are, in fact, a law firm. Harbottle and Lewis have uh, managed to be employed in the last week by both uh, George Osborne, because of a story which has been in circulation, um, and uh, also by Hugh Edwards. Okay, oh. double whammy. Yes. <laughs> uh, Yasmin, who are yours? Hero... I'm going to go with Carlos Alcaraz. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Yeah. Is it Alcaraz? So I'm telling you now, he he will not win for me because I had to watch five hours of that yesterday and not for me. Oh. So I mean, fair, fair play not, to him. Like, not, you know. Not, <laughs> not, not a massive tennis fan personally, no. but I feel like when you're 20 and you beat Novak Djokovic, you... Yeah. You deserve to be the hero. It was like one, like, it was the sort of one positive thing that I saw on Twitter in a long time. And that site is generally pretty negative. So yeah. I was like, that's nice. Villain, I'm going to say Russia. They take a beat because it could be for any reason. Um, but <laughs> specifically for canceling the grain deal, that was really vital to um, keeping kind of the flow of food from Ukraine, which is obviously a big breadbasket of the world, to countries that really need it. So now that that deal has been canceled, remains to be seen kind of what happens there and, and how it affects already what was a food crisis that kind of erupted as a result of the war. Uh, Podrick, what about you? I'm almost like um, like Seth in that my, my villains and heroes are not necessarily the same people, but in the same milieu. So my hero this week is um, Leo Varadkar, the leader of Fianna Gael, who managed to whip his MEPs a little bit of background. I think Marie mentioned the Marie Le mentioned the nature restoration law going to the European Parliament last week. Um, at which point the you know and the EPP, the European Popular Party, which is most of the most of the centre right parties in the European Parliament, decided to get in bed with the, the loony right nationalists, Nazis, etc. Full on climate denialists and decided they were going to attempt to attempt to block this um, the, the nature restoration law, which is a massively important piece of legislation for the future of biodiversity and nature and climate in Europe. Um, the pendulum slowly turned when um, Varadkar, who's the leader of Fianna Gael, which is uh, the Irish member of the EPP, um, seems to have whipped his MPs, the, his MEPs, five of them. They all put out videos on the night before the the vote, to, the vote which was not for the thing, it was against, they were voting to reject the rejection which is because the, end, the European Parliament is such a simple, simple yeah. vehicle. Um, so Varadkar... Inception you know, votes. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so the five MEPs, they put out videos which very much looked like hostage videos. Um, they may as well be holding up newspapers, but with the date on them saying they were being treated well, but they all said, having thought about this carefully, they were in fact going to vote against the rest of the EPP. Having cheer previously been massive cheerleaders for all sorts of you know, crazy 
anti-nature, anti-climate action laws. Um, so well done to Leo Ridger for getting those guys moved over to the right side. Obviously, the villains were everyone else in the European Popular Party, pretty much apart from one or two others, the Icelandics and Czechs, I think, who voted gleefully against a law that is you know, set, designed to protect nature, to protect agriculture and all this. But they lost. So we're all happy for now. Right. Time for me to decide. So I'm going to go for Leo Varadkar as hero because you stuck with the rules of it being a person. And uh, sorry, the tennis just didn't do it for me yesterday. I, I literally sat down to watch it. And then uh, my girlfriend just goes, this might be three hours, you know. And I just looked at her thinking, Eve, what the fuck? <laughs> three hours? Then it went on for five hours. Of the, yeah, no, he's he's not. That's not working for me. So Leo Varadkar, and then although not a singular person, I, f- I think you can't beat Russia as a, as the villain. I think if you <laughs> yes. say Russia, that is the trump card. <laughs> uh, it really is. So I'm going to say Russia. As we can say of the Putin week. if we want to make it a person. Yeah, so yeah. Let's make it Putin. Yeah. Nice. Sure. I mean, Harbottle and Lewis were people, but they died some time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Operation Gloves Off is the definitely very cool and tough name Sunak has apparently given to the relaunch of the relaunch of his latest relaunch, as he tries once again to show us he is the man for the job. The war on woke is going to get fully underway, according to a report in the Sunday Times. Finally, something new for us to uh, keep an eye on. As Rishi and his mates try to act tough, I find myself asking... What is the point? Do they truly think acting like hard men can actually save them from political oblivion? Yasmin, are you ready for this latest reimagining of Rishi? <laughs> That's the thing. It, like, it doesn't. From what I've read of the the Sunday Times article, which talked about like cutting taxes and like war on woke, like none of this sounds new. No. <laughs> like this all sounds like uh, recycled stuff, which I guess you know, good recycling, good for the environment. Maybe yeah. they're going green, but like. <laughs> On the whole, all of this sounds like stuff that the Conservative Party has kind of brought out again yeah. and again is to try mm. to sort of beat those things to, to get their voters mobilized they just seem to and say, excited. We'll do better at what we've been doing badly so far. We'll do the bad stuff we've done badly better. If you'd like that, is basically yeah, what exactly. they're offering. It's like trying to sort of reframe <laughs> the narrative in a way that they, they think will suit them and sort of help their electoral prospects. But none of it, all of it just seems really stale. And I think that's kind of the trouble that Rishi Sunak faces. Because unless it's sort of a real big rebrand that's kind of focused around him, which, let's face it, he's more popular than his party, at least according to the polls that I've seen, like, latest, then I really struggle to see sort of what kind of new, like, rabbit they can pull out of their hat and be like, aha, like, you know, this is what we're going to do that's very like fundamentally different that the voters are going to love. Even if there was this sort of magical, mystical rabbit he could just throw out there, does he actually have the, the space to change how people think about him? So he's done these kind of relaunches multiple times before, but they were much mm-hmm. earlier on where I don't think he was quite as much of a known entity. But surely at this point, you know who he is. Everyone knows who he is. So he can't say someone... No. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think when we look back to like kind of Keir Starmer, and I feel like he's still sort of in the process of introducing himself to people. I feel like as so long as kind of he's doing that, I feel like they're, they're both okay. they, there are some like notable similarities between them. Right? I mean, we've talked about this before, but they're both kind of seen as sort of managerial, technocratic. In a way, I don't know. Like Rishi Sunak isn't the type of person that I feel like people feel like they like really, really know. Like I think if he wanted to kind of bring people in a bit more, he probably could. I mean, I think. 
to compare with like Boris Johnson. I mean, I'm not saying Boris Johnson was like open to everyone, but I feel like we knew so many of things like mostly bad things about his personal life and stuff like that, that we, you know, people felt like they maybe knew him more intimately. I don't get the impression that people feel that way towards Sunak. So I'm not saying it's not too late, but I think the trouble that he has is that he's brought down by the fact that people are very familiar with his party um, and the last 13 years. So I think so long as that's the case, and it's kind of really hard to sort of reshape. I mean, you know, they tried. They tried with like, you know, the Windsor framework. They'll probably point to the CTPT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they'll point to their latest trade deal. Be like the letter thing. Yeah, the letter thing. They'll they'll point to that and be like, look, you know, we have this diplomatic uh, friends, you know, friends with the U.S. Prime Minister in Downing Street. He's doing a great job, and you should trust him. And even if people do trust him, they don't trust him as much as they no. trust his parties, or, or they don't trust him, his party, nearly as much as they may trust him. So I, I think it's technically yes, because there's still a bit of time, but uh, probably not much more. I suppose it all comes down to the the test I like to put on anything as to whether you can truly understand it is how would you tell your mate about it down the pub? Mm. And Boris Johnson, you could probably, I won't try and do this test because I wouldn't say very many nice things, <laughs> but you can quite easily imagine being at the pub and being like, so he's this guy, he's got this big crazy hair, da 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 da. Whereas Rishi Sunak, I don't know how I would describe him in a completely simple way he doesn't pass that test really and i suppose until he does then he's not trapped by either is he uh the tough stuff though the the war on woke the cruelty to immigrants it, it all feels really pointless to me when basically all anyone is thinking about is i have less money or i don't have enough money to to live as well as i would like to so does it all feel superfluous yeah no way Big way, yes. I mean, I think it's they're trying to clearly reset the narrative and, and you don't you can't blame them because the narrative yeah. isn't very good. But I think fundamentally, at the end of the day, you, you've got to think about what is sort of weighing on people when they go to vote while the threat of like, you know, woke warriors or whatever. I don't know, like the, or any, <laughs> any of the things that they talk about, like, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, I think people are going to be thinking about, you know, can I afford to pay my bills next month? You know, d- does do I feel better than I did yeah. 13 years ago? Um, do I think that the future for my children in this country is better yeah. than it was a decade ago? And if the answer is no, then I think, you know, you could talk about immigration and, and wokery and all that stuff. But I, I don't. Yeah, it just it doesn't strike me as the sort of thing that's going to be weighing on people in no. a very significant way. It's not something that's going to be keeping them up at night. It just feels quite classist to me from Rishi Sunak. That he doesn't seem to witness or realize that people actually see voting as quite a a big duty and responsibility and something that they clearly truly think about and truly put their mind to it and he honestly believes just saying i'll get rid of woke people you don't like who frustrate you on twitter will completely sway a majority of people's vote that just seems both stupid and incredibly patronizing to people you're essentially saying i think you're stupid and i can just throw a toy over there and get you really angry. And to be fair, I don't like, I mean, I haven't watched all of Rishi Sunak's like kind of pronouncements in recent days, but like, I can't even really picture him saying that because that almost no. seems a bit too degrading no. for him. Like, Suella Braverman can say it. Like some of like, the yeah. people around him can say it. But I feel like that, even just going yeah. to that level, like he's almost, he comes across as more serious than that. No. And I think even just the fact that kind of what they're throwing out there, I don't even think the prime minister could like, you know, go out on doorsteps and be like, this is what matters well, to Britain. Yeah, his, his being tough always comes out in sort of leaked messages to random friends at right-leaning newspapers, which, I mean, is is very much not a very tough guy thing to do. I can't imagine sort of, I don't know, 
Ross Kemp leaking messages <laughs> to the Sunday Times <laughs> about the next gang thing he's going to to investigate in that way sort of thing. It's just he he would probably just come out and say it. And it's I noticed Sunak the other day he posted how uh, Labour didn't want me to go to NATO on on his Twitter, yeah. <laughs> and it was just it's complete shit. We, no one said don't go to NATO they said just could you come to PMQs every so often and also as you say he can't even say it it's like he is aware of the fact that he is not a sort of imposing tough guy so he yeah. can't get away with that sort of bluster in the way that some people yeah. can the, the NATO tweet is a just example of like he has like he's so limited like he just can't there's not yeah. a lot to go for whereas like I remember Keir Starmer telling me like on Ukraine on it, we're 100% behind the government and I've told Sunak that I'm like okay yeah. well he clearly <laughs> didn't get the memo <laughs> Seth, does it ever work when politicians try to seem tough or say they try and act like kind of how Ed Miliband did and saying, hell yes, I'm tough enough? Does it ever work? They tend to be preoccupied with making it seem something that could work because it comes up in opinion polls and it particularly comes up in focus groups. Um, you know, what Derek Draper used to describe, I think slightly condescendingly, as eight people sipping wine in Kettering. But I mean, the fact that they constantly say, well, the politicians don't seem terribly tough, that doesn't actually mean that people who know nothing about government say you should be tough, therefore you should be tough, should yeah. work out that way. And frankly, it's not a very tough occupation. Alan Clark used to refer to politicians as podgy life insurance risks. Uh, these really aren't, you know, the sort of people with killer instincts. If you think about the really sort of instincts of the tough people, the ones who've actually been trained killers, like, dare I say, Rory Stewart or Paddy Ashdown, they've tended to not rise to particularly high office in the grand scheme of things. If you want some examples of where politicians in the past have been quite tough, I've got the Times Guide to the House of Commons from 1945. And you find uh, the Conservative MP for Glasgow Central. Yes, there was one, believe it or not. Um, A guy called Colonel James Hutchinson, described as a 52-year-old Glasgow businessman with four months after D-Day, operated with a marquee in France behind enemy lines. As he was known to the Gestapo, his features were altered by plastic surgery. (laughs) (laughs) We don't see politicians like that, so why even pretend? Are you quite easily caught out as a politician as well if you try and pretend to be tough and then you you don't seem tough? It reminds me of sort of Dukakis and the tank photo where it it was just he was trying to present it and then eventually went, okay, do you want to go at looking tough? And he looked ludicrous and it, excuse the pun, completely tanked him because Mm -hmm. of it. So is it just you're so likely to get found out? Yeah, I think so. Um, And you're moving outside of your comfort zone. You know, so much of this is about rhetoric, the phrase tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, because, again, it went down so well with focus groups. But then you didn't expect that you'd have this mantra for the next 20 years that people would be sort of regurgitating whenever they they think they might say something contentious. This sort of language as well, it feels silly to me, basically, because... You know, going back to the university courses situation, they've called it a crackdown. And there's this ludicrous picture on Twitter of like a hammer coming down Mm. on on universities. It just is so hyperbolic that then you can't, nothing can be taken seriously. Oh, totally. And I stick by a, a simple rule of thumb I had when I was a student, which was never vote for any politician anywhere who promises a crackdown on anything. 
I was also quite interested, actually, by what you were saying earlier with Yasmin about uh, this being very much a sort of classist thing. That, I think, comes hugely into this because there is a certain element of condescension of we, the politically enlightened, don't actually care about this whole tough thing, but we understand the voters are interested in that and it placates them. Um, And there's something incredibly condescending about Rishi Sunak. You know, this is a guy who makes a great deal about what a success he was financially as a self-made man from a humble beginnings. But it wasn't because he was that much of a whiz kid working for an investment bank. It's because he married a billionaire's daughter. (laughs) Um, And there is something very patronising about the whole, you know, toughness rhetoric. Well, it feels to me like it's, you know, there's sometimes that kind of thing where if you, you go so far left, you almost start to become right and it feels like with the the politics, you get so far into being really clever about your politics, you just become incredibly dumb. Yeah, and the the test for a lot of these things is if you find yourself alone in a room with a bunch of MPs who think, okay, this is off the record, what can they actually talk about? None of them are talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from Sunak, uh, Jenrick is another minister who's gone from seeming quite sensible to painting over murals of Mickey Mouse. Are you surprised by his trajectory? No, I don't think of him as somebody who's synonymous with the word sensible. Uh, The first thing Jenrick did on starting his parliamentary career was being chased around his constituency by Michael Crick over uh, questions about inconsistencies in his spending return. Um, (laughs) And Robert Jenrick is somebody who's been at the heart of Tory fundraising since he started as an MP and indeed before then. He's also somebody who's very popular with Tory donors because he spent so long as housing minister and there are so many Tory donors in housing that they tend to say, oh, I really want to speak to Robert Jenrick. So I've not tended to think of him as the most sensible person. I've tended to think of him as a sort of money guy who um, you don't ask too many questions about. But does it really say something when even Nigel Farage thinks what you're doing is a bit mean to yes. directly quote him? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Podrick, what do you think Jenrick's motivation is? Is it that the... Is it the good of the Tories or just self-interest that he might get Braverman's job eventually? I think at the moment you're looking at a, a Tory party which is which is in in a spiral of just trying anything and we're repeating itself as we said earlier as we I'm repeating myself about the top of repeating oneself but they you know there is yeah as I said, there, there's this obsession with with looking tough, I don't think particularly there's any great careerism being involved because I don't think anyone in the party truly believes they're going to win the next election. Ben Wallace quite you know, had a telling yeah. line in his in his in his hagiography in the Sunday Times this week, this weekend where he said he's not quitting. It's not he's not it's not that he's quitting now because he's scared of opposition. Whereas uh, even though apparently fifty three percent of Tory MPs still believe that they're going to win the next election, yeah. But he he was you know fairly it was fairly explicit saying obviously we we ain't we ain't going to win this. So I don't I think Jenrick now I mean whether you know the jockeying for position post election might be happening, but I don't think that this current spiral they're in no. is going to inspire anything that's going to happen after the next session because there's going to be a big evidence sheet of none of this, these things worked. And no matter how hard you tried to go at them, they kept not working. They they not worked more. Yeah. So <laughs> how often you can you say, well, we're going to paint over more murals. We're going to we're going to ban Elsa from all on foreign under fives or whatever it is. It, it's it people just even as you say, even Nigel Farage thinks are horrible. So I think it's 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 not. I don't think it's cal- calculated anymore. I think it's a bit of a death spiral. 
Yeah. It's also after 13 years of the Tories being wankers already, too. <laughs> so if it's kind of not working Just run out now. of new ways of being yeah. wankers, basically. <laughs> uh, Yasmin, I'm going to take a quick sideline and make you de facto America correspondent sure. here. <laughs> but does this feel a little bit like it mirrors what's going on with the Republicans as well, in that there is just a feeling of being really tired of it all? Like, you know, the people like Liz Cheney, for example and Kinzinger, who left, it felt to me like they just felt, well, what is the point? I've tried to be decent, I've tried to do the right thing, and people simply aren't being swept along with me. We've copied a lot about the American combative style of politics, and I think the the Tories seem to have not, even though America seems to be, and the Republicans seem to be a little bit further down the road, they haven't seemed to look at it and go, oh, that's how this turns out and is this kind of it mirroring that i think it's a different type of loss i I think on the u.s side it's it's the case of the less extreme republicans who had remained within the party recognizing that there wasn't really much of a place left for them and that the type of politics that they were trying to bring um wasn't really you know there wasn't a lot of interest in that among their traditional base so i think that that's like one thing i think it's kind of similar, but but still distinct to be a Ben Wallace or any of the other litany of MPs who have said that they're tapping out after the, the next election to, to recognize that they're probably going to face unemployment anyway. Or at the very least, that they're actually just quite tired of Westminster and that maybe it's just a bit of a, you know, I'm thinking of like, is it Mary Black, the mm-hmm. SNP yeah. um, Westminster deputy? I mean, someone as young as her deciding that actually I'm also done um, and pinning it. You know, obviously, the SNP's electoral prospects going forward don't look that great either. However, I think that there is probably just a an exhaustion and, and perhaps a self-awareness that, you know, maybe maybe this isn't where I want to be. And, and I think in that case, it's probably very similar. You know, if you're a even a remotely sane Republican in the U.S., you're not going to look at the party as it stands with all the Republican candidates notwithstanding and think, hmm, yeah, like yeah. that's. Sign me up. You know what I mean. <laughs> I do think that point about about exhaustion is is a very good one as well. I, I think I'm you know I'm and it's there is and it goes back to the whole machismo of British politics at the moment. You know, kind of it's it's still it's still in this kind of mode where you spend all day in the palace, all day and all night in the palace of Westminster. You're drinking the bars every evening. Everyone's yeah. kind of in this place all the time. You know, and it's and then it becomes this aggressive and grinding place. Um, and I think for a lot of people that have that, spoken to the papers, you know, in the past few weeks talking about stepping down, it's like, I, I just can't do this anymore. I can't actually live like this. It's, it's an unbearable way to live. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, looking at, you know, if, you know, we're recording on a Monday here. You know, the Lords will start deg- debating the illegal migration bill at 10 p.m. tonight. And as someone pointed out, like, that's basically how many Lords can stay awake till 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an absurd, absurd system. I think my, one of my... Most fundamental beliefs that will never ever be made into law is the parliament should be Monday to Thursday, ten to six, with an hour for lunch, and just yeah. work like normal people. Um, but it will never happen because everyone wants to feel like they're special and crazy, brilliant people who yeah. can do all these things, which they can't. MPs being normal people will never catch on. No, Seth. On that, Conservative Homes Cabinet League table shows this weird mix of sensible and not so sensible at the top of the pile in terms of satisfaction amongst Tory party members. Do these members not actually know what they want? 
I think the methodology on that's quite crude because it just looks at subtracting the people who are unpopular from the people who are popular, broadly speaking. And so you get these sort of averages. And we were talking about exhaustion and awareness, and I think that comes into a lot of this stuff. So essentially, if you know that somebody is there and exists, you tend to think, oh, they're not doing a great job in this uh, poll. If people have been doing the job for a year or two, um, if you look at the list and you think, who he... You tend to not be terribly unpopular because no one has a strong view on you. Um, And the exception to this actually is Ben Wallace, who has a sort of stratospheric rating. But that's somebody who's actually been in post for four years and has actually got a track record of doing something, you know, rightly or wrongly. The will of Tory members is a very strange thing. And I mean, there's a whole question about... um, meritocracy. There's also a question actually about masculinity. I'll tell you, going back to the US, one of the most deeply insightful pieces I've read on the conservative mind from the last three or four years, this is a piece in the Daily Beast, and it was written by a professional dominatrix. And she talks about how so many of her clients were Republicans and indeed were Trump Republicans. And she said the thing about them, the real key to understanding them, was that these were, in their heart, deeply submissive men, but that they didn't have a culture or a community or a society that had any kind of acceptance of that. So being a Trump supporter allows you to go out and say, I'm aggressive, I'm deeply aggressive and angry. But actually, you're just following the leader and you want to be following them around the whole time. Margaret Thatcher in the UK tapped into that in a big way in conservative circles. And I think if you look at the weird series of personality cults that have overtaken the Conservative Party at various times over the last few years. You'll find there's a a certain bit of that that's been going on here as well. Everybody just wanted a cuddle from the Iron Lady, basically. (laughs) I've got two (laughs) terrible images in my head. One of which is, as mentioned, the, the, you know, as you go around the States and been there for the past year or so, people people seeking Trump's nomination, he humiliates them deliberately. On stage, humiliates them. Mm. Um, There's an article in... N plus one, the literary magazine, um, this month about J.D. Vance, the author of Hillaby Elegy, who is now, you know, wants to be, you know, is, is standing for Congress. Thing, but, you know, and talking about how much he had to debase himself in front of Trump. Mm. Um, the other image that horrendously comes to mind, uh, which, which I was thinking this morning, is, is the, in one of um, Margaret Thatcher at, I think it was the 1981 Conservative Conference, um, spanking Christopher Hitchens with her pro- conference programme. And him describing the erotic thrill of that. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave you with that. Can, can we censor that? <laughs> straight on to oh, Ofcom. No. So if we ended the last... We're not Ofcom. That's why we get to do this. It's great. Fuck the Tories. We can say that, really. I mean, don't know if I will. It's a bit gauche. But, you know, we say what we like. Seth, uh, we ended the last section by asking if Tory delusions will keep dragging, dragging us down because of Brexit... But also, is it their own delusions that are dragging them down too? Because they don't know, they don't care, and they can't be bothered to find out what people really want. They just want to talk in a really clever manner and say, we know what the people want. I think the existential problem the Conservatives have had for about the last 40 years is that previously they didn't necessarily have firm beliefs. They were a party of firm management, of continuity, of balance, of of patriarchy and squirearchy, all of these sorts of things. And what Margaret Thatcher introduced was ideology and a rabid ideology. 
And that has so skewed the last 40 years in different ways. You can't get selected as a Tory MP by getting in front of a bunch of party activists and saying, oh, I I believe in generally better management of the country. You get up by saying, I believe in these rabbit causes, absolutely. And whatever he believes in, I believe 10 times that even more strongly. Yeah. I saw a, a Telegraph headline, which we can end on, which was senior Tories say Thatcherites must fight true blue seats to avoid existential crisis. And I thought the word avoid really did a lot of work in there. Because <laughs> I think, you know, you have to have avoided something in order to avoid it. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. It's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for our escape routes, where we ask the panel what has distracted them from the depressing world of politics over the last few days. Seth, what are yours? I've been reading Jonathan Healy's book, The Blazing World, which is essentially looking at the revolutions and counter-revolutions of the 17th century and how it wasn't just one crisis. It was a whole number of crises back-to-back. And if that isn't topical, I don't know what is. We actually did a bunker daily on that, I'm Mm. sure, which Andrew presented. They can cut this and tell me if I'm wrong. (laughs) But if I'm not wrong, then go and listen to that. We uh, We can put a link to it somewhere, I'm sure. Yasmin, what's yours? So I recently saw Dear England at the National Theatre, um, James Graham's uh, latest play about um, England manager Gareth Southgate, who was portrayed kind of eerily uncannily by um, Joseph Fiennes. Like he got his like mannerisms and accents like down to a T. This was actually my second attempt trying to see the play because the first time it was scuppered by stage malfunctions like three minutes in. Oh, um, but it was it was well worth the wait. Um, I thought it was like such a moving kind of retelling of, of how Southgate has been trying to get England to tell a different story about itself. Um, and yeah, I think it's on, it's in the theatre until I think August 11th, and hopefully again, but you should try and see it if you haven't already. And Podrick, what's yours? As the father of a three-and-a-half-year-old uh, child, my media intake is somewhat influenced by, by what she wants to watch at any given time bluey. or read out. Yes, Bluey. <laughs> so we were massively excited last week when um, 10 new episodes of, of Bluey dropped on, on Disney+. Plus. It was a big moment in the house. Um, obviously, I downloaded them before she even knew they existed and have been getting through them, you know, trying to ration myself. Um, bluey is, I mean, it is, if you haven't seen, I'm sure a lot of listeners will have seen, but it is just a... So I, I, think it is honestly the best animated series since The Simpsons in its heyday at this point. Um, and yeah, the, the, the current crop deals with you know, a lot of complicated issues like um, you know, childlessness in the family and how to navigate that. Also, how to navigate if your parents support two different rugby league teams. You know, big important <laughs> issues of our age. Um, so yeah, that's been, that's been the big news in our house this week. 
Nice. Well, my escape route this week was I went to stay in the hotel where Rocky Horror was filmed in, uh, which was, yeah, I mean, I'm obsessed with Rocky Horror. I'll say at any, at any point that anyone wants to hear it, it's my favourite film. Where is that? It's in Windsor. Oh, yeah. Wow. Really like it. It was, uh, yeah, and it's just a really, I regret to say that it's been kind of, uh, the room where the time warp happened has been kind of Soho houseified. <laughs> and, it's, it's very, and people were very confused by me while I stood there. I was like, this is where Brad and Janet are said. This is where he asks people if they know how to Madison. <laughs> and people were just looking at me like, why is this guy just taking random photos of the Brexit room or the banister in the entranceway? And I'm like, Magenta slides down this banister. <laughs> Surely you all know. And no, I don't think anyone knew. It is called the Oakley Court Hotel. And it's, it's quite near Eton. You can go for a really nice walk around there. You can get boats. It, yeah, it's super, super nice. But please don't go there expecting to get any Rocky Horror experience in particular because uh, you'll realise that no one else there knows what you are talking about <laughs> <laughs> in any way, shape or form and that is the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God What Now thank you to Steph Tavo thank you Yasmin Serhan thanks for having me and Podrick Reedy thank you in October, not content with the Hackney Half, Yasmin is running the Royal Parks Half Marathon <laughs> in support of the Rory Peck Trust. So cancel your Netflix subscription in solidarity with Hollywood Strikes and give to a good cause instead. And if you're getting ready to see Oppenheimer or Barbenheimer this week, then you might want to prime yourself with two episodes from our companion podcast, Origin Story, where Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt look at nuclear war. Parts one and two are out now. Thanks for listening to Oh God, What Now? See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Podmasters Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis with Seth Tavo and Yasmin Saran. The group editor was Andrew Harrison and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Adam Wright. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. 